This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So earnings season, as we know, kicking off with a batch of big bank earnings. JP Morgan Chase making more money in the fourth quarter than it ever has. It also signaled more optimism about borrowers being able to repay their loans. Uh, the biggest U.S. bank posted a jump in trading and investment banking fees. Wells Fargo, meantime, posted worse than expected expenses in the fourth quarter, took some charges of more than a billion for restructuring and a few other things, some of those old account scandals. And then Citigroup's fixed income traders who propped up the bank's earnings throughout much of the pandemic. Well, they missed analysts estimates for the final months of 2020. There is a lot to get to. So let's bring in, first of all, our Michelle Davis, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She covers JP Morgan specifically. And Tim, safe to say, as the biggest U.S. bank, we care what's going on with them in particular. We care what their CEO, Jamie Dimon, has to say. He is one of the long-running CEOs on Wall Street. So Michelle, good to have you here. First of all, cap recap for me what we got from JP Morgan, if you would. So J.P. Morgan's earnings were definitely the standout. They generated a record amount of revenue and profit in the fourth quarter, uh, $12.2 billion, and that capped off a year in which they made $29 billion, which is more than any other major bank has ever earned in a year. Um, not more than they have ever earned in a year. They had the most profitable year in banking history in 2019, mm-hmm. um, but still a ton, uh, especially given that we're in a pandemic. Uh, a 20% jump in trading helped that, but they also released nearly $3 billion in reserves, which is uh, it came as a surprise. You know, analysts were expecting them to, to maybe release uh, $200 million. Uh, so $3 billion is a lot and signals that, you know, they feel that they are well prepared to, to kind of withstand whatever is coming. And, and it means that maybe the outlook for, for loan losses isn't as bad as, as they were uh expecting or, or thinking earlier on that's a lot man three billion just gonna say yeah feels like a lot well what was the commentary that we heard from the bank about uncertainty about customers being able to pay their credit card bills about uh, when fiscal stimulus will actually hit customers those sorts of things so you know they struck a bit more of an upbeat tone than they have in in past quarters but they you know did mention multiple times that, you know, there's still uncertainty. There are a few things that are, are leading some of this optimism. You know, one is obviously that there's a vaccine that, uh, you know, according to CEO Jamie Dimon, could mean that, you know, people are going back to work as early as, as September, you know, like in force. Um, and also the fact that there's, you know, perhaps certainty on the, the change in administration and the fact that stimulus has been passed and, and there could be more coming. These are all things that are led to the optimism. Uh, on the consumer side, the one area of, I guess, uncertainty that they really called out was on the credit card side. Um, they didn't release any reserves there, and they they pointed to a possibility of a, a payment shock coming hmm. if and when uh, you know benefits expire. Um, but so far, you know, there haven't been any delinquencies. Like I mean, there have mm-hmm. been delinquencies, but nothing that you'd expect from you know millions of people unemployed. Uh, the their net charge-offs actually went down from the previous huh. quarter and from, from last year. So 
they're saying that you know this they could start to see losses starting in the the second half of, of this year um, right. or even later. So. Mm. Well, net-net, listen, you know this, Michelle. We go to Jamie. We like to hear what he has to say because he's, you know, kind of one of those elder, sorry, Jamie, elder, but, you know, in good shape from what I understand, um, you know, statesman out there that has seen a lot of crises, you know, was really, you know, key through the financial crisis. This is a different crisis, uh, fair to say. Um, But we care what he has to say about the bigger, broader picture. Was he more optimistic or was he more cautious? He was definitely more optimistic. They spent a ton of time on on the analyst and the media calls uh, talking about investments that they're going to be making. And actually, you know, their shares last time I looked were down. And one of the reasons that uh, you know could have they could have been down is because they announced this big 12.4 billion investment initiative, which is yeah. it's a couple billion more than they normally spend on you know new things. And and Jamie, you know, he was just talking about how they have so much capital, like more capital than they can do anything with. Yeah, they're going to buy back stock, but also he wants to do some M&A. So he was optimistic. Yeah. I mean, he said, yeah, like there's still uncertainty and we have to get through this pandemic first. And there's going to be a ton of questions later on about how we fix, you know, that the U.S. deficit. But for now, let's get through this. And like, I'm going to do some deals in the meantime, hopefully. Right. Some of this excess capital. Interesting. Uh, stock's down about 1.2%. But let me remind everybody, it's still up almost 10% so far this year. And that's after a gain. Uh, actually, it was down a little bit in uh, 2020. Um, Anton Schutz is also with us, uh, President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors on the phone in Florida. Uh, Anton, good to have you here. Happy New Year. Nice to have you here with Tim and myself and Michelle. Uh, Michelle's been kind of running down J.P. Morgan's quarter and what Jamie Dimon had to say. What do you make of J.P. Morgan's results specifically? Uh, I think the numbers were, were pretty strong across the Board. Uh, you know, clearly the capital markets were great. Um, reserve releases, you know, have really become formulaic. I mean, there's there's a new accounting system that went into place um, last year called CECL, and a lot of the reserves depend upon the modeling. And a lot of the consultants come in and model. I know Moody's much is much more optimistic. Got it, got it, got it. Hey, Michelle, I know you're going to leave us and Anton's going to come back. Um, just 30 seconds here, the key takeaway then from J.P. Morgan, because we're going to still get a few more bank, big bank earnings next week, just quickly. Yeah, a uh, key takeaway would be uh, most profitable quarter ever. Uh, reserve releases, there's optim- you know, they're optimistic and Actually, all the banks are optimistic, more optimistic than they have been. So it okay. probably bodes well for, for next week. All right. We'll see what all happen. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much. Appreciate the ba- uh, breakdown. Have a good weekend. Michelle Davis, finance reporter at Bloomberg News with us on the phone from Vermont. Anton Schutz is going to come back with us, president and chief investment officer over at Menden Capital Advisors. Uh, his Menden Financial Services Fund uh, up more than 9% so far this year, putting it in the 80th percentile, at least according to Bloomberg data. He's very much into regional, so we'll get into that. Sounds good. Also, nice to end with optimism. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This story definitely caught our attention. It's in Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. It's about something we hear a lot from our medical guest, Tim, when it comes to COVID-19. We know vaccines are important, but so too is more testing. Test 
test, test. That's right? what it's about. That's what's one of the things that's going to get us out of this pandemic. Exactly. And for guidance on that, just look to Minnesota. Let's get into that story. Susan Burfield, she's projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. She's reporting uh, with Bloomberg's Michelle Cortez. Susan with us on the phone from Brooklyn. And also with us is Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber on the remote access from Brooklyn as well. Uh, Jill, we're all so consumed by the vaccine, getting it out, rolling it out. But let's not forget, we've got to continue testing as well. Yeah, and uh, you undersold um, a key a key cell of this story, which was Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. Um, <laughs> and, and the Minnesota part of the the story is is really an interesting one because this is a state that actually had a budget surplus and was able to kind of you know so this is in praise of fiscal responsibility. <laughs> they they were able to basically take that budget and just immediately pour it into testing, and as Susan um, will tell us more about. The state has basically um, made it its mission to test everyone in the state, um, man, woman, child, do it relentlessly, make it free and so simple that all you have to do is spit in a tube and put it in the mail. Um, Susan, why isn't everyone following Minnesota's lead here? Yeah, um, thanks, everybody. So, you know, as you mentioned, Joel, like Minnesota had a few advantages. Um it had a budget surplus, but it also did direct a lot of the money it received from the federal government to testing. So just early on made um, the decision, you know, informed both by its relationships with the Mayo Clinic um, and the University of Minnesota, a great research institution, that testing was going to be crucial. Um, and, you know, as the summer went on, it became obvious that it didn't just have to be, you know, easy and convenient. It had to be free and widely available. And they had to use you know, the version of testing that um, is the easiest for everybody, really, which is, as you mentioned, the, the saliva test. Um, and so you know, what Minnesota did is actually uh, work with um, the company that oversees the saliva test and the lab that processes those samples to build its own lab. And I think that was really crucial because that lab is dedicated to Minnesota residents and it, it can process um, up to 30,000 tests a day. Jeez Louise. Which, uh, you know, begs the question, like if, if you were doing 30,000 nose swabs, like I think that would get kind of, kind of tiring, but the fact that it's, you know, you're able to spit in a tube um, takes so much of the workout. And as I understand, the test is exactly the same effectively in, in terms of its results. So, so what about, like, why was the spit quotient so, so useful in Minnesota and why, why aren't more people able to use it? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so you're right. It's, it's, um, it is the same test, you know, as the nasal swabs um, that some of us have had, which are pretty uncomfortable. Um, also have to be done, you know, with um, a medical professional right there with you. So one advantage of the saliva test, of course, is that you um, can do it at home. Um, so that means fewer medical professionals. That means less of the protective equipment is required. Um, the test can be processed as quickly. Um, and I guess what's holding back other states from being able to do this is in part, you know, the tests are more expensive. And so Minnesota decided that, you know, it was going to pay for the test when it couldn't get reimbursed by insurance companies. So 
the state made a pretty big commitment to make those tests in particular free to everybody. And so, you know, anyone in Minnesota can sign up um, and receive a kit at home, I mean, more than one, um, and, you know, take the test and get the results um, within uh, within 48 to 72 hours. So, um, you know, there's, there's um, only a couple of these labs around the country. Right. Um, the company, the company has been talking to other states, but, um, you know, it, you know, as everyone knows, it's really every state for itself, or at least it has been. And right. so, you know, if you want a lab, you have to uh, build it and you have to pay for it. Susan, I got to say, I wish I'd read this story like months ago because I've done the spit test and it's actually mm-hmm. kind of easy, but it's actually, it wasn't so easy kind of working up all the spit, to be quite honest. And you have actually a piece of advice that, or that you learned about <laughs> and how to do that. That's right. The secret, the secret apparently is um, to smell, not eat, because you can't eat for 30 minutes before you take the test, right? But if you smell pickles or even lemon, apparently that helps you produce um, more saliva than normal. And then I guess afterward, if you consider it a treat, you could eat either of them. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Well, we do know that that testing is key to getting us out of this pandemic. So so where does the state stand with getting things under control? How how is the testing actually manifested when it comes to positivity rates and and the status of of how people are faring? Yeah. So, you know, Joel, um, Joel joked, but not really joking, um, jokingly, you know, asked, like, why Minnesota? And, um, you know, one of one of the reasons I think that made Minnesota a particularly compelling uh, case study, if you will, is that, uh, you know, as we know, over the summer and the fall, most every state that surrounded Minnesota, uh, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, Iowa, were having a terrible time of it. You know, yeah. some of the worst, worst case rates in the country. And so... Minnesota, of course, is not, um, you know, cannot separate itself from its neighbors. Um, But when um, the Dakotas were the first and second, basically were, you know, had the highest positivity rates in the nation, um, Minnesota's never rose above 21st. So, you know, as even the governor said, like, it was a very effective program, um, but the sheer magnitude of the cases in the country you know, of course, you know, works against any state's efforts. Yeah. You know, one state can only do so much, and yet every state has been asked to fend for itself. Well, and this is where we've seen certainly the problem, uh, and we'll see what happens yeah. under a new administration where we start, you know, whether or not, Susan, we start to see some co- coordination. This is um, a great deep yeah. dive into what Minnesota is going in. As Jill said, Minnesota? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Susan, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Susan Burfield, she's Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from Brooklyn. If you got some time over the weekend, check out her book, too, The Hour of Fate, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and the Battle to Transform American Capitalism. Jill Weber, thank you as well, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, Bloomberg Business Week, by the way, on newsstands, online at Bloomberg.com, and also always on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Masser along with Tim Stenovic. Let's get right to it because with us, back with us in our 
Uh, Friday check when it comes to COVID-19 is Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Lango Medical Center. This on a day where we've seen deaths from COVID-19 globally top uh, 2 million. Uh, we've got approaching about 400,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. A lot going on right now. Uh, Ian, so good to have you here. How are you? Uh, doing well, Carol. Thanks. I had, and Tim, uh, happy Friday. I did have my second shot earlier this week, so I'm I'm certainly feeling safer. Uh, the second shot definitely packs a little more punch, and oh. some people do have a little fatigue, a little aches, uh, which I experienced, but I was able to keep working through. So, uh, uh, we definitely want to encourage everyone to do it, and uh, there is some vaccine hesitancy, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but uh, uh, it does feel good to get both shots, and I know a lot of people want that and are trying to figure out how to get that. We were curious because we had a story yesterday that NYU Langone was telling its doctors it may not get new vaccines next week and that they were, I think, running out of supply. So that's not the case? That is exactly the case. Yeah, we had a conference call today, and it, it, the conference call really illustrates a number of, uh, you know, of issues of getting the vaccine into people's arms. One is, uh, the good news is that we can do uh, at our multiple sites somewhere between five and 7,000 vaccines a day. We're getting about 5,000 vaccine doses per week. So really, there is a big uh, gap between what we could administer and what's being delivered so, from the state. Well, I just want to make sure I get these numbers right. You're getting fewer in one week than you could actually be able to deliver in one day. That is correct. That is correct. What That's, is the? Uh, what are you hearing about that increasing? Well, you know, we really rely on the state. And as of the Friday conference call uh, by one of our, you know, uh, leaders, um, they will not know until I think Sunday night whether or not uh, the number and when there'll be delivery of vaccine for next week. So many patients are frustrated. You know, they're calling, when can I come in? Uh, Those are the ones without vaccine hesitancy, but uh, a number of patients are calling. They may have underlying autoimmune disease or other issues, and they may not fit the exact criteria, and they want to know, can I get it sooner? Um, But people are not being booked uh, until the vaccine is present. Uh, present. So that's been the, at least the NYU policy, which is you don't want to give people dates unless you really know that you have vaccine to give them. So in part, the holdup is certainly getting it from New York State. And I assume New York State is having some problem getting it delivered as well. So when does this get better? I mean, what are you telling patients and, and what can you tell our listeners about when these bumps could be ironed out? Well, I wish I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I think we did not... Um, this should have been better anticipated, really. You know, this, we're, we're uh, do pretty well with the flu shot, and that's really given out over several months. We do that to 150 million people. But this mass vaccination really, in my opinion, should have been handled by central authorities, the military, you know, drive through. There should be a vaccine that's available at, you know, pharmacies. We really should have, I think, had a better execution of uh, not only delivery of the vaccines, but exactly, you know, down to the patient, how it would be administered. So I think we're coping as best as we can. Mm. Uh, We're trying to give it out as best as we can, but uh, the supplies are limited. And of course, um, 
every center. You know, the local doctor's office don't have this because at least for the Pfizer and really for the Moderna, which is are the most widely available at this point, they do need special refrigeration, much more so for Pfizer, of course. So you're literally waiting for a styrofoam box of frozen vaccine to be brought into the uh, a vaccine center to be given out to people. Right. Uh, it, it could be more efficient. Let's put it that way. Are there any hopes, any signs that you're seeing that once we get a new administration place, it's just around the corner next week that things will change? I'm just curious if, if your team there at NYU uh, Langone is hearing anything about that. You know, I think there's a lag. I I think everyone wants to do the right thing. I think a new administration needs a ramp-up time to kind of get a feel for exactly, you know, the the distribution that's present and perhaps how it can be improved. I'm very confident that there are a number of vaccines, you know, the AstraZeneca and J&J, which is one shot which will make life easier. Uh, Is that a game-changer potentially, Ian? I think so. You know, the the data is that you really have to wait like six to eight weeks to really get full right. efficacy. But not having to bring people back is really, that's really part of the other problem, that you give people the shot and you have to get them in the computer to schedule for maximal uh, efficacy. You know, you, you need to book the second shot really at the time of the first shot, ideally. So I think the J&J will make it a lot easier to do more widespread vaccination, which I think is the only hope to really bend the curve here with the, you know, with the deaths and disability. I feel sad for I've had a couple of patients um, die who literally are probably just weeks away from if they were able to get the vaccine. So it's very sad. It is. And and we're getting sort of conflicting news today, right? On the one hand, we're seeing COVID hospitalizations drop in in 36 states. But at the same time, we're hearing this new report um, from the CDC about a faster spreading variant that could overwhelm the U.S. just like it has in the U.K. How do you sort of bring those two things together? So all viruses mutate is sort of selection pressure. And um, viruses do better the easier they spread um, and the less lethal they are is typically what happens. So um, so the bad news is it, it spreads more easily. It appears that it's less lethal or comparably lethal. But I think the vaccines, because they're polyclonal, meaning Uh, multiple antibodies to the spike protein, I do think the vaccines will be very helpful in reducing uh, all of the variants we've seen so far. So I think that's encouraging. I think we can expect further mutation. We'll really have to see. Hopefully what won't happen is that the virus will mutate so sufficiently, say by next fall, that the vaccines will become ineffective. That would really be terrible because then you need another mass vaccination program. I don't think that's going to happen. You don't. How come? No. Really quickly. Uh, because that spike protein is really how the virus attaches to our cells. Okay. Uh, that is preserved, and the antibodies hit various parts of it. So Got I it. think even if one part mutates, probably the antibodies will work on the other part. All right. Oh, you're such a gem. All right, Ian, have a good weekend. Dr. Ian Lospader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, this story's headline, Tim, says it all. The Fed wakes up to race. The mighty Federal Reserve wants to help level the playing field. Is it up to the task? 
That's the big question. It is the big question, and it's really topical. So let's get into this story. Uh, It's a deep dive by Bloomberg's top-notch economic team. Bloomberg News Federal Reserve and Economics reporter Katarina uh, Sariva is with us. She's on the phone in Houston. Katarina, um, this is a must-read for everyone. Uh, So I highly recommend people go to Bloomberg.com or pick it up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tell us what you guys set out to do. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I mean, we really felt like 2020 was kind of a pivotal year for the Fed. I mean, in terms of um, people's awareness of wealth and equality and just the racial disparities in our economy, it, it really was a pivotal year for all of us, I think it's fair to say. But um, the Fed, uh, you know, really started being quite vocal about this. We saw quite a few Fed presidents coming out to talk about it. Indeed, Chair Powell uh, talked about it um, several times throughout the year, and then of course they had um, this big change to their uh, to their um, policy strategy. Um, so they are now really focusing on um, you know making sure uh, they're correcting for employment shortfalls, and it was just kind of like a much bigger expansion of. Um, how they look at um, their the, one of their goals, which is maximum employment. So we want, wanted to really, you know, take a look at that and kind of kind of do a, a big, you know, big step back look at, at what this year meant for the Federal Reserve. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the dual mandate already, right? This idea of maximum employment and stable prices and the maximum employment element of this. What is the power that the Fed actually has? What are the tools the Fed has at their disposal to sort of uh, uh, target monetary policy in a way that that can affect the racial disparities? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people in the past have argued that the Fed's tools are blunt um, in this case. And, and you know, in some cases they are. Of course, they, they can't um, do things that Congress can, like with actual fiscal policy, right? Like targeted programs, but they can, um, you know, they, they can adjust their interest rates and, and decide when they're going to do that. So, uh, you know, one of the big lessons kind of that they will tell you that they learned from the last five years is that if they keep interest rates low for long and let the economy, you know, what they call run hot, which means that they let the unemployment rate get a lot lower than they previously thought would be good for the economy. That brings a lot of marginalized workers into the labor market. And that really helps people that in the past were excluded from full employment. So based on some of the comments the Fed has made, and particularly Jay Powell, how is he kind of balancing this? As we know, the Fed always tries to be like, you know, apolitical or, you know, and stay out of politics. So what are we hearing from Jay Powell and team? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, we, we certainly saw Janet Yellen when she was Fed chair um, talk uh, a bit about inequality. Um, this was, you know, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And she got criticized for it. I mean, by politicians, she got called out by leaders in Congress for being, you know, getting into a political debate. Um, but I, I really think that they now feel that this, isn't really political anymore, or rather it's, you know, perhaps bipartisan, right? It's something that we can all agree on is a problem in our economy, you know, inequality along racial lines, um, and is is something that, you know, talking about that shouldn't be seen as political. It's, it's part of their economic mandate. Well, and I do wonder if I'm having a largely white fed... <laughs> 
um, you know, at various levels too, but obviously at the top positions and it's not completely, but you know, you just don't have diverse views there or diversity of thought and how that might hold it back. Yeah, exactly. And this continues to be a problem, especially at the top levels and especially within their um, economists cohort. Um, it, it is not very diverse. I think only about a quarter of the economists are women and only a quarter are um, people of color. Um, so they, they definitely have a lot of ground to make up there. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that can contribute to, you know, what economists like to call groupthink, right? Like it, it, it's this kind of creates this echo chamber where you don't take into account um, different views and, and you are more likely to kind of um, have blinders on. And, you know, I think we've seen evidence of this. Um, we, we have, you know, we talked to um, Seth Carpenter, who's an economist at UBS. He was at the Fed for many years. Um, he is black, and he talked about his experience with this. You know, he, in the early 2000s, was looking at how the Fed's policies impacted different race groups. And, um, you know, he, he found that there were disparate in- impacts on unemployment. Um, and he, you know, as he told us, like, no one really showed much interest except for Roger Ferguson, who was at the time the only um, set black governor at the at the Board of Governors. So, you know, you you see kind of the limitations that this imposes. So we only have about 15 seconds left. But the question that you ask in this piece is, is the Fed up to the task based on your reporting? <laughs> can they pull it off? Well, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to see what happens. I think it is far too early to, to say that we have any victories, but um, we'll see. But safe to say, it seems like it's more on their radar than ever before, which sometimes is a first big step. Right, Tim? Yeah, I mean, the recognition of it is, is a big deal. Yeah. Katerina Sariva, uh, she's Federal Reserve and economics reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Houston, and you can find her story at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take, my co-host in our interactive broker studio. We do have about uh, 19 minutes left in today's trading session. We do want to bring in J.J. Kinahan. He's chief market strategist over at TD Ameritrade. Joining us uh, once again on the phone from Chicago. J.J., nice to have you back with us. Uh, We're a little, I'm definitely exhausted. Tim's doing really great, but I'm like (laughs) off my game. Thank you, Carol. It's just been, you know, it's already been a 2021 um, how do you see it? First of all, take me back to last week. Where were you when everything was unfolding? And how do you see it? How does it make you kind of think about what might be to come this year? Well, you know, last week, obviously, was a black eye for the nation. Um, it's and any impeachment proceedings, etc. It's just it's just bad for the country in general. Um, hopefully with next week and going forward, forward from there, we, you know, come together. I think sometimes people forget that almost half the country voted for the losing candidate. So hopefully what, you know, you, 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 you ex- let's put it this way. There are crazy people everywhere, but unfortunately most people are very centrist and very uh, reasonable people. Unfortunately, the reasonable people aren't as exciting a story as the crazy people. So crazy people tend to make the news. Well, wait a minute. Well, they had to make the I, news. I, don't mean that the, I was just going to say they well, had to make the week, news they, last don't week. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> okay. Week, they had to. It's not a criticism <laughs> of covering that, of course. I'm just saying in general, you know, and, and really it's not a statement against, I didn't mean that maybe as it came off. 
all I'm saying is I think most of us are reasonable people. Win or lose, you you, you know, it is what it is, and you march on and you figure a way to, uh, to go forward. Unfortunately, throughout the last, you know, few years and because of social media, I think often, Right. Crazy people are hogging the news cycle. How's that? And and uh, thank you. But and I, what I will say to your point is that, and we Tim and I have talked about this a lot, is that we had a great story on, and I keep going back to it on the terminal about the Capitol rioter. You know, one of our reporters talked to one of them who went there. You know, in you know, in support of Donald Trump, just planned to protest, and then all of a sudden was in the Capitol. You know, and kind of understanding his story. And I do think it is important, as you said, a lot of. Americans voted for the current president to kind of understand what is on the minds of these voters and even those that got pretty angry and stormed the Capitol to understand what's on their minds because they're Americans too. We've got to kind of understand where that anger is coming from or where maybe that displacement is coming from. Fair? Yeah, yeah, I I think you said it uh, much more eloquently than I did, Carol. (laughs) And I think the good news is if you look at what's going on in the market, not only with that, but with COVID, with everything, the way things are being priced is we are looking forward and out, you know, a few months past some of the problems. So, uh, yeah, we're, we, you know, we're selling off a bit today. I, I, we've come back, of course, quite a bit from the lows, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are heading into this three-day weekend where we come out of it to Inauguration Day. Right. And we've all seen the warnings about Capitol buildings around, the, you know, in every state. So not necessarily a big surprise that after this nice run-up, people are like, why don't I take maybe some profits or take some risk off the table as we head into or buy some risk through, you know, options or whatever as we head into this weekend. So Today's trading cycle makes a little bit of sense. I'm very happy to see that we did bounce off the lows pretty well just for those reasons that it's not an overwhelming sense of fear, if you will. And I think certainly as reflected in the VIX, you're not seeing a crazy amount of fear out there either. Well, JJ, I should I should note that we are awaiting President-elect Biden, who is planning to deliver remarks soon on his plan to deliver COVID-19 vaccines. We'll bring those to you live uh, when we get them. But I'm, I'm wondering if we think back to last night about the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus plan that Biden unveiled and the details that, that we got. Um, what do you make of it and, and, and how it could affect the trade? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Tim. I understand why rates are a little bit lower today, obviously, because when we're down, people go toward fixed income. But what I'm watching uh, is going to be when, when that money, as money starts to continue to hit the system, at some point you would think there would be some inflation. And so I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. happening tomorrow and, you know, you have to hide <laughs> hide behind that or anything like that. It was interesting that uh, Mr. Kashkarian today came out and said, no, inflation, you know, I don't see it much more than 2%. But I do think that with so much money in the system, it would certainly lead you to believe that that pressure is going to happen more and more. Maybe it will take until the second half of the year when things are back, and I'm using air quotes when I say this, to normal in terms of people – you know, traveling, people back at their offices and having an opportunity to go out and spend money a little bit more than we do as in many states. I know New York is similar to Illinois. We're still in a state of lockdown. So even your opportunity to go out and spend money is a little bit limited. Well, and I don't know, JJ, do you have any clues from what we got from the big banks uh, so far, Wells Fargo, City, and JP Morgan in terms of 
uh, especially Jamie uh, Diamond talked a lot about kind of bigger macro issues. But did you get any kind of clue about maybe where we are in the economy, the outlook, and how the rest of the year may, uh, might play out? I, I thought what Mr. Diamond said actually is kind of what the market wanted to hear, even though, you know, those banks have had a little bit of a tougher day in that next few months continue to look rocky but much more optimistic as we get to the second half of the year. And I think that that's been a a viewpoint uh, many of us have had. And, you know, as we just got done talking about, the logistics around the vaccines is still, I think, something that's a bit more concerning. We all know we're a little bit behind plan, et cetera. So that's, I think, where the volatility continues. Because if we don't continue to get people vaccinated, uh, it, it, it just prolongs our right. opportunity it, to get back on a more normalized schedule. It's so interesting that you say that because we did get sort of a slew of, of bad news this this afternoon and we didn't see major uh, action in the markets as a result of that. Um, we learned that New York City is close to running out of vaccine. We mm-hmm. learned that two million people globally had, had died from this. Um, what is it going to take for a, a headline to actually move markets when it comes to COVID? Well, I, I, I think that there's still so much hope that the vaccine is going to be good that maybe people are looking at it as a uh, little bit of a blip in the road, if you will, Tim. I agree. I mean, I, I hope that's surprised. the case. Yeah, I hope so, too. I was surprised that we didn't get that. But the other end of it is you look around where you're going to put your money right now. It's still the best place in town, so to speak. There's nothing else that's really competing with the security and particularly the returns we've seen over the last seven, eight weeks. It's been outstanding. And, you know, in some ways you scratch your head, like, how can we possibly be going up today? But the fact of the matter is there is a lot of money still coming after these stocks because there just aren't many great alternatives right now. Hey, so I think and refresh my memory, but I think you've liked Moderna in the past. And I'm just curious if so, if that's still the case or are you starting to look at something like a J&J, which, you know, if it's a one shot vaccine, that could be a game changer, as we heard from Dr. Ian Lusbader earlier over at NYU Langone. Um, that could be a game changer in terms of demand for vaccines and kind of making the whole process easier. How do you see that? Is there a play there? Well, I think that, you know, if I had to look at those one versus the other, the one thing I think that gives Johnson Johnson a little bit more of an advantage is this. Um, if something happens with the Moderna vaccine, et cetera, or if for some, you know, God forbid reason we realize that over time things aren't as successful or logistics take longer, Johnson & Johnson has a whole lot of other products that still give them great revenue. And I just think that if you look at, again, Moderna, maybe in a shorter time frame, if you have that, you want to take a little bit more of a shot. But I think if you're a longer term investor, you know, Johnson and Johnson, just because. Got it. uh, JJ, we need to run. Have a good weekend. JJ Kinahan. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.